In the previous section, we, uh, we looked at what Paul said where he reviewed the gift of tongues, and he'd been talking about tongues for several chapters. You guys are probably happy to know that we're kind of done with that now, but and uh, the last thing we looked at is where he described its, its primary purpose, which was a sign of judgment against unbelievers, in particular unbelieving Israel. And we also looked at how he described its procedure, um, how as a spiritual gift it was to be practiced when the church was gathered. So those are two things that we looked at last Sunday, and we all learned that with what we see happening in churches today, it doesn't look anything like Paul's, um, the procedure that he, that he lays out for us in the first portion of chapter 14, or the middle portion, I should say. In the next section, Paul kind of switches, and he's already reviewed tongues. Now he's going to review prophecy, and that's how chapter 14 wraps up. You know, prophecy has been the spiritual gift that he's really wanted the Corinthians to pursue because it does the most good for the church, far more good than tongues ever did. And so he's been on kind of this bandwagon for prophecy and talking about it and talking about its preeminence and all that. Well, now he gives a specific review of it. And when Paul wrote this, uh, this letter to the, to, to the Corinthian believers, to that church, uh, you must understand that prophets were still uh, very central to the work of the church and to the work of that church in particular. In fact, in, in this particular epistle, nowhere is there mentioned any pastor, elder, or overseer, which gives us the idea that the role of the prophet was pretty primary in that church. The prophets seem to have been, according to MacArthur, seem to have been key leaders in the early days of the church. And he kind of goes to Acts 13, 1, where it talks about it a little bit. And because this was obviously the case in Corinth, Paul was compelled to give some guidelines for the prophets who served in the church to follow. You know, everyone that serves in the church needs biblical guidelines for how to do that, including the prophet. And so that's exactly what he does here. And you sense that he talks about both offices of the prophet. You know, we had prophets that give revelation. Well, that's ended. And there's prophets that give exposition. And I think he's addressing both here. And we'll, we'll learn that as we move through the text. Uh, please take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 14 once more, verses 29 to 40. We've got a lot of material to cover, so I'm just going to get rocking. I want to pray before we get to work. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this time. Help us to focus, to listen, to learn, to know, to understand, to apply, and to obey. That's the key. Teach us about prophecy once more today and the other guidelines and principles thing, and things that are here. Uh, we love you and pray in Christ's name. Amen. So we've been doing five P's, and we've now reached the fifth and final P, and, and that can go up on the board. And this is it. Now we're talking about the procedure for prophecy, and that does take up the whole rest of the text, 29 through 40. So as you can see on the screen, he's already talked about the procedure for tongues and all these other things. Now he's really going to hammer down on prophecy. In describing the procedure for prophecy, Paul issues, I, I found at least six guidelines uh, for the Corinthians and all churches to follow. So this is going to be a, a, a point-centered message. You know, we're going to be looking at guideline points and all sorts of stuff. And I just want to get right into it and begin with the first guideline, and that's A. The first thing he says here is limit the number of prophets who speak. And the idea is there is it's during a worship service. 
He, he wants a, a certain amount of them to speak no more and less is fine. You could have one speak, that would be fine. You could have two, maybe up to three, but any more than that, no more. And he puts it like this in verse 29a, let two or three prophets speak and then stop there. So the, the New Testament, just more theology for the prophets, the New Testament prophets, they spoke for the Lord in two ways. In some instances, they gave new revelation from God to the church. And by reiterating what the apostles taught, they also proclaimed what had already previously been revealed, like preachers and teachers of the word do today. So firstly, when we think of the prophet here in the text, there are some that gave revelation. And this is before the finishing or completion of scripture. And there's some that just gave exposition of what had already been taught. So firstly, that's something we need to understand. And Paul is talking about both types. Now, since the overarching goal of the gift of prophecy, like all the other spiritual gifts, is to build up. Remember, we learned that back in chapter 12, verse 7. And I think since the attention spans of people have always been problematic since the fall, and that's a very real and practical thing. Think about yourself. How long is your attention span? Mine's not very long. And I think TV and everything else has conditioned us to be that way. But since the main goal of prophecy is to build up, since the attention spans of people vary, since there's always the potential for creating too much confusion when too many people speak, Paul is limiting the number of prophets here. Let one, two, or three at most speak at a time. And uh, this would help to, if you only had so many speak, and I think if you were just to stop and think about even that, in that context, you have maybe two to three people giving sermons during a worship service. I think one is enough for us, especially when they're long like mine. But just imagine if you had two or three of them doing it. So that's the idea here, but if you, if you at least limited it, and this tells us that they had much more speaking than two to three, but the idea is that if you limit it, it'll hopefully reduce the idea or potential for confusion. I don't know about you, but if I hear two or three sermons, I'm trying to figure out which one I should have paid more attention to, which message I should have applied truth from. It's difficult for me to do it all, so I've really got to hone it down to one. And I think that's Paul's thinking here. Attention spans are short. Uh, confusion can happen. Limit it to two or three. And that, again, tells us that they must have had entire services where one prophet would speak and then another and then another and then another. And it's, uh, I, I don't know about you, but I don't, I don't know what I would take away from that if so many people are giving exposition and I'm just trying to figure out what to do. If every person with the gift of prophecy, and there are quite a few then, were to spout off all at once, or even in succession, one after the other, wouldn't the audience figure, or wouldn't the audience spend most of its time trying to figure out who to listen to and what to apply? What sermon was I supposed to really apply this morning, because I heard four or five of them? That would be tough, wouldn't it? And I think that that's what Paul is getting at here. You need to limit it so we can avoid that kind of picking and choosing. And I'll tell you this just as a matter of confession. I think we made a similar mistake like this early on as a church. And it's before some of you made this church your home. But early on, we had all sorts of teaching components on a Sunday morning. We had, uh, we had a very gifted and talented uh, worship minister. And not that our worship ministers aren't. They are. But we had one that was very talented and he was very pastor-like. He was a pastor like me. He's a pastor today like me. It's Aaron Filbrin. And he would give... He would give good commentary 
or good teaching in between songs. So every time a song would come up, he would give you the gist of the song and parallel it to scripture, maybe even read a verse. So he was really, really good at teaching in between things, and he would do it every Sunday. We had a thing called family time where you know, we, would, we would pause and, and some, one of the elders would come up and give a 15-minute lesson meant for families, and there'd be Bible teaching in it and all this. There'd be other little things that happen in between with readings and all that. And then, of course, I would get up and preach at least an hour-long sermon. And the idea is that you had all of these uh, people, all of these men gifted with the gift of prophecy, expositional preaching or teaching, and they would all get up and exercise this gift. And by the time it was all said and done, in an hour and a half to two-hour sermon, people would walk out of RHC going, that was TMI. Too much information. Well, I don't... What sermon was I supposed to listen to? And, of course, I would be like, mine! You know, and then Aaron, well, I, you know, what I said was good, you know, or family time, Bruce or somebody else, but we just thought that we had so many things to cover and so many things to address in families in this society, a church in this society, that we need to try to cover everything on a Sunday morning. It just ended up being too much. You just didn't know what to apply, what to walk away from. And walk away with and I think that's very similar to what we're reading about here and so at one point we just realized this is too much we need to focus on on singing to the Lord and and reading scripture and and spend some time in prayer and have one you know good message and that's it and encourage people to walk away with that message rather than family time and everything in between so we kind of made this mistake in a way early on and it took us a bit to figure it out and I think the Corinthians, everything they did, they went big. So, you know, they'd have a whole bunch of different prophets and stuff speaking, and it had been, been like RHC on steroids. It would have been much worse, I think, difficult for these people to, to track and to follow and to apply whatever it was that they needed to do. And Paul, um, he really did prefer for people to pursue the gift of prophecy over tongues and over the other gifts. But he, you know, as we see in the text, he places limitations here. It is a superior gift. It is a preeminent gift because it really takes the word and builds people up where tongues doesn't do that. It tore down language barriers or served other purposes. It was a sign of judgment and these things. It just isn't a gift that was designed to really build up the church where prophecy does. But even here, Paul is saying, even though it's the preeminent gift, there is a right way to practice it. And you really can't have more than a couple people doing it on any given Sunday because it's just too much. That's what he's saying here. Um, if you have more than two or three in their context, you'd end up with confusion. And then what happens? The very word of God, which is meant to build us up, transform us, make us like Jesus, sanctify us, edify us, mature us, all of that ends up becoming counterproductive because we're just not handling it right and giving people too much. And you would think, no, you can never give anyone too much of the word. Well, that would be debatable because we can only learn so much in, an amount of time, in a certain amount of time. If you give people a lot of scripture over time, it's going to be helpful. But if you shotgun blast them with 29 sermons on a Sunday, uh, I don't know. I don't know how they're going to deal with that. So that's what Paul is saying. Limited. It's an effective gift, but it's more effective when it's limited. And I think that's the same for everything, right? Where less is more, right? You've heard that phrase. This is true of teaching the word, the prophets using their gifts, and so on. So the first thing he says is limit the amount of prophets who are going to speak on any given Sunday. Don't do more than two or three at most. And I would say today, don't do more than one. Uh, and then secondly to that, the second guideline we have is B, 
You want to limit them, but you also want to test every prophecy that they, that they preach, that they speak. Verse 29b, he says, and let the others weigh what is said. Now, this is crucial. Okay, instead of all the prophets going on and preaching or revealing or doing whatever, only a few should. And the other ones that are there, Paul is saying they ought to sit there and listen to what is being said. And the, the Greek word behind way is to judge. So they are to judge what is being said. And what do they judge it against? The authority, scripture, what have you. And so you've got some speaking, you've got others. Rather than speaking, they should be listening and judging. They should be like the Bereans, testing, making sure that what is said is sound. Because there is such a thing as a false prophet. There is. And so uh, when they spoke in a meeting, the other ones were to sit there and kind of weigh what is being said. I call them judging prophets. The judging prophets, they may have had the gift of discernment. It could have been that. That's spoken about in chapter 12, verse 10. Or they might have measured what was being said against their own knowledge of the word. In any case, they were collectively to evaluate the validity of all prophetic messages. Okay, so understand that in the early days of the church, and it's supposed to be this way today, that no message preached is supposed to go unchecked. The other elders that are in the building ought to listen and measure and weigh. They don't have to say that guy's a joke. But they need to be listening and they need to make sure that whatever that guy is saying in that moment squares with the word, that it affirms 2,000 years of orthodoxy, that it's sound biblically, that it's sound doctrine. They need to be listening and weighing. And so Paul is telling us that very early on, prophets were not these individuals that had, you know, um, a sort of autonomy and can do whatever they want, they were to be measured and weighed and monitored by other prophets in the church. And this is all preliminary, really, to elder boards. They just weren't being formed yet. Paul hadn't got that far yet with his churches. He was starting to train elders by this time. So instead of having, rather than having elders in place that could do that job, it was the prophets who should have been weighing and measuring each other as they preached. And they weren't sitting there with a test score, you know, and, oh, he hit this and he hit that. They're just listening to make sure that what they're preaching affirms the word. Or that if somebody gives a new revelation, because it was totally possible before the word was finished, that it actually squared with the old revelations, the Old Testament or wherever. So... They were to test every prophecy. Uh, J. Max said this. He said, since the prophets sometimes were entrusted with new revelation, it was especially vital that everything they preached and taught was absolutely true and totally consistent. Because they were helping build the foundation of the church, the validity of their teaching was of the utmost importance. No prophet acted unilaterally in teaching. There was accountability among all of them. And that's exactly what you see in 29b. You see accountability from prophet to prophet. They listen to what is being said. Now, again, Paul's point, if they're all talking, then none of them are listening to each other. And somebody has to have the gift of discernment and know the word to, to listen and to pay attention and to, and to monitor what's being said. It's not like we're sitting there waiting for somebody to make a mistake. We don't want them to make a mistake, but we're sitting there listening to make sure that what they're teaching the congregation actually builds up instead of leaving that, leading them away from the scripture. If we had more of this in the church today, there'd be far less error being perpetuated, and it's everywhere. We're surrounded by it. So that second guideline is to test what they're hearing, to test every prophecy. 
And then next we have the third guideline, C. This was a little bit of an interesting one to me. It is to yield when another prophet gives revelation. We see this in verse 30. A, a new revelation, something fresh and new from God through one of these God-ordained, God-appointed prophets, that would take precedence over some kind of reiteration, over something that had already been taught. So if you had somebody who was gifted with the gift of prophecy, a man steps forward, he's got the gift, and he's actually revealing something new from the Lord to that congregation, the other prophets that were maybe slated to speak that morning or what have you, they were to step aside and leave it at that and let that new revelation go out and leave it at that. And don't add to it. Don't, don't take away from it. Don't distract the people with um, maybe uh, not another revelation per se, but some kind of exposition of some Old Testament truth or whatever. They were just basically to take the back seat while that prophet gave that revelation. And it's not that the truths in the new revelation were, you know, like necessarily more important than, than the older truths that have been around that others have been expositing. It's not that. It's just that at that particular moment, the new should be heard and focused on while it was still fresh from the Lord right in that moment. So now we don't have this issue today because there is no more new revelation. We have the full revelation. But in those days, even in Corinth, there was the potential for new revelation because the word was not finished. And if that happened, the other prophets didn't say, I can't wait to get to my turn. They would just stop and they would leave it at that person who was giving. Maybe it was only one person who spoke that morning. And like I said, this is not an issue in the church today because the revelation aspect of the prophetic ministry, it's gone, it's ceased, it's over with the completion of the New Testament. So you had... Prophets taking a back seat to other prophets who gave new revelation. And I don't think that was very frequent and often. I think that that was a rarity to have new revelation. And then, of course, it ceased later on. And then the fourth guidelines. These, some of these move really quick, by the way, as you can tell. Some will spend more time on, some will just fly through. The fourth guideline, D, and this is hugely important, take turns speaking, verses 31 to 33a. Why would this even be a point that he would make? Because in the Corinthian church, they didn't normally, they had too many people speaking and they didn't normally take turns. They were all trying to speak at once as if they were trying to compete with one another or outspeak the other one or every prophet was just speaking all at once. I don't even know if this was a large enough church to be able to handle that. If they had like one section over here and one over here, one over here, I just think prophets went forward and they just started prophesying and then people were sitting there going, I, I guess I'll try to listen to that guy. And Paul is literally saying, you need to do this in sequence. Not only do you need to limit it to two or three, not only do you need to take a back seat uh, when somebody gives revelation, not only do you need to weigh and measure everything that is said, the prophets that aren't speaking need to do that, but you got to take turns. You can't do this all at once. If, if one goes, then the other one waits or what have you. He says it like this in 31, for you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and be encouraged. Now, this is the same prohibition or limitation or guideline that he gave for tongues, right? If people are gifted with tongues and they're going to speak, we already know you had to have translation or interpretation or it was don't do it at all. But they, he told them back in 14, chapter 14, verse 27, to do it in sequence, to do it one after the other, to do one and then the next and the next. He's saying the exact same thing here. It was absolutely imperative that, 
They speak in tongues in sequence, and more importantly, that they prophesy in sequence, one at a time. If more than one spoke at a time, how could all learn and all be encouraged? That's exactly what he says. He says, if you prophesy one by one, then all will be encouraged and learned. But if you keep doing it the way that you've been doing it, with everybody speaking and nobody measuring and nobody taking a back seat to Revelation, if you just keep doing it the way that you're doing it, how is anyone in your congregation going to learn? How is anyone going to be encouraged? Like with tongues, if a whole room of people is speaking in tongues, and if it's the contemporary and ancient gibberish that isn't a tongue, I mean, how is anyone being helped by that? How would anyone be helped by a whole bunch of prophets preaching the word at the exact same time so all their voices blend together and just make mud? These people were so anxious and excited and exhilarated by the idea of all flexing their gifts at once. And so that's what they did. But there was no order to what they're doing. And he just says, you know what? You got to take turns doing this, doing that. You got to do things in an orderly way or it doesn't help. Uh, I don't, again, I, I don't, if everyone's speaking and they're not taking turns, I, I'm not exactly sure who I'm supposed to listen to or what I should apply. If I'm having to, if my attention is having to compete for, you know, for people to listen to and to speak, I, I don't know. I mean, last night, great example. We were in a big barn and everyone in there during cocktail dinner hour was talking and, and there was 200 and something people in this room and you could not understand one word that was being said. Why? Because everyone was speaking at once. And it, it just, you listen and it's like, this is the church of Corinth. This is what crazy out of control tongues was like. I couldn't, I, I, the closer I got to the table, I couldn't even understand them. Because these ones over here were drowning them out. But when everyone's speaking at the same time and they're all using, if they're all speaking the same sentences, then you go, wow, this is powerful. Like at Shepherds, when every, you know, 7,000 or 5,000 or 4,000 men are singing in, you know, together in sequence, it's amazing. But if everyone in that room was singing a different song, <laughs> that'd be bizarre. I saw it last night. I was like, I can't understand what, this is an illustration for tomorrow morning. <laughs> Hallelujah. Thank you, people, you know. But I mean, you just, what are you going to, who are you listening to? Who are you going to apply? Verses 32 to 33a. He says, this, this is a little bit interesting. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. So this is an interesting thing that he says hinged on verse 31. In verse 32, Paul reinforces, really what he's doing in 32 is he's reinforcing the principle that we see in verse 29 of prophets weighing and judging each other's messages. So he's kind of zipping back here to verse 29 is what he's doing. And I think what he's also doing is he's hammering away at Platonism again. Remember the thoughts and teachings of Plato that had kind of crept into the church and this idea of, you know, spiritual disconnect, like where the temporal part of a person is, is still functioning normal while a spirit is communing with God. There's this weird, you know, nirvanic separation and just this really bizarre new agey stuff that was going around in Corinth at the time. I think what he's doing is he's hammering at that again, as well as referencing verse 29. Platonism taught that a, a, a worshiper, a, a real devout committed worshiper could enter a state of nirvana where their body remains in, a, in the temporal state that it was already in, whether they be grocery shopping or doing anything else, while their spirit sort of rises above them and is communing and worshiping God. So this is a 
a real thought in that day. And the Corinthians had adopted it. Now, if you think about it, if this were actually true, then whatever message this person that is, is, is um, whatever person is experiencing this kind of platonic um, reasoning and reality of the disconnect between their spirit worshiping God and their temporal body, if that person, if this were true of that person, and they were to prophesy, so to speak, or speak a message, then really the message they speak or share would not be subject to criticism because allegedly it would be coming directly from God, right? Hey, God, I know I was doing other things and I was focused on other things or I got myself into this worshipful frenzy of speaking in gibberish and then my spirit communed and connected with God and he gave me a message for you. And so the idea is that if this were a possibility, then there might be some legitimacy to their message because it happened as their spirit was connected to God and God gave their spirit the message. That's the thinking that Paul is dealing with here. That's what he's, he has in mind. And yet, since the Bible does not teach Platonism, since it does not teach Nirvana, since it does not teach Gnosticism some sort of mysterious disconnection between our spirit and the rest of us, it actually teaches the opposite, that the whole person is engaged with God or not at all. Since the Bible doesn't teach Platonism or Nirvana or any of these things, Paul is saying literally here an attack on Platonism and the Corinthian thinking, he is saying that the whole prophet, his message, his spirit, the totality of who he is, his entire message, his entire person, is all subject to the prophets. In other words, when a prophet spoke, his message was being weighed, and whatever he said was being weighed against Scripture, and this idea of it coming directly through some nirvanic connection or anything like that was irrelevant. All that matters is that if the person is speaking truth, that's what matters. So there's no excuse here, well, I got this revelation from God while I was in this nirvanic deal, and you're going to have to suck it up and take the message. Paul is saying that, no, the whole man is to be criticized. The whole man is to be listened to. The whole man is going to be judged by God. So he's really just blasting this Platonistic idea here. It's not going to happen. You know, if, if a person gets a revelation from God, it's going to be scriptural, and it's going to the whole man. He, it's not just his spirit that receives the message. He receives it with his mind. He understands what is said, what is being said. He understands what he is to convey to others. It is received with his heart. It is believed and trusted in. And so this disconnect idea is ridiculous. And somehow some of these prophets in the Corinthian church thought it was a possibility. So they thought they could skirt this kind of weighing or measuring or testing or judgment. MacArthur has a really good set of comments on this. He said, the Bible knows nothing of out of spirit or out of mind revelations. The Bible doesn't have any sort of view on that. It doesn't push any sort of view where there's a disconnect where a guy receives something and his mind doesn't know what's going on, but his spirit does. He says, those to whom God revealed his word did not always fully comprehend the message they were given. We know that to be true. But they were always fully aware of what the message was and aware that it was given to them from or by God. Scripture does not teach the bypassing of men's minds either to reveal or to teach God's word. I mean, what he's saying there is it would be like me getting up to preach in the spirit and it's the spirit that's preaching through me and I have no idea what's going on. It's just the spirit using me as like a big fleshly utensil as a mouth box. That is not the way it works. 
I'm the one that sat at a desk for two or three days and wrote this sermon. I know exactly what's being said. And I will be the one who is judged for its content, firstly by the elders and more importantly by the Lord. There's no disconnect, guys. Sometimes there's a disconnect between what I say and the scripture because I go off on a tangent or make an Ephesians joke, you know, right? I mean, sometimes there's that disconnect, but God is not revealing something to me that I'm not coherent of or aware of. Whatever he reveals to me, to, uh, uh, to me through his word, there's nothing new. When he gives it to me here, I understand what he's saying. If I don't understand what he's conveying to me here, how on earth could I teach it to anyone else? I'm the first one who has to apply this stuff. I'm the first one that's convicted, right? I read it. I study it. Sometimes I'm so convicted, I say, I can't preach this to these people. I can't even do this, right? And God says, I, I'm, not, I'm not basing this on your qualifications. You don't have any of those. Christ does. But this idea of a disconnect is ridiculous. MacArthur says it just doesn't exist in Scripture. There is no bypassing of men's minds either to reveal or teach God's Word. Scripture presents no ecstatic, bizarre, trance-like experiences related to divine action or to the prophet is how he ends his paragraph. So I think what Paul is doing when he says the spirits of prophets are subject to the other prophets is that whatever they say, whether it's in the spirit or in the flesh, it doesn't matter what they say, whatever they say is subject to critique. So if you have some Platonistic dreamy idea that you can get up there and preach and not be judged for what you say because it was between you, your spirit and God, this is a fallacy, this is ridiculous. You will be judged more critically than the person that doesn't speak. And the first line of defense against error is the other prophets. And today in the church, it's not prophets, it's the elders, it's the other pastors. That's what he's saying. When a, what a man says is to be judged for accuracy, regardless of how he obtained the information. In fact, half the time, elders and prophets of the ancient prophets were trying to make sure that whatever that prophet was saying was actually coming from God. And how would they know that? They would know it because they know the word. So the whole man is subject to this. Whatever he says is to be judged. Everything is to be weighed and tested against Scripture, 1 Thessalonians 5.21. According to the Old Testament, do you know what happened when somebody got up and prophesied and their prophecy turned out to be false? Well, they were removed from that synagogue and then they ended up in another synagogue, right? That's what would happen. No, that's what happens today when you have a false teacher. They are booted from a church and they pack up and go somewhere else and continue to spread their nonsense. Do you know what happened in the Old Testament? They were killed. They were taken out and destroyed. They were executed. They were given capital punishment. Anyone who spoke in a presumed way, they presuming upon the Lord and spoke falsely because it was based on presumption and not God giving them the message or anyone who said anything against the law or anything like that, they were, and they called themselves a prophet, they were killed. Now, am I suggesting that's what we need to go to today? Well, not necessarily, uh, but um, <laughs> it would solve a lot of trouble. Uh, you know, we're, under a different, we're under a different covenant, but false teaching is still lethal and deadly. It is. And maybe they're not drug out you know, outside of the city gates and stoned to death with rocks or shot with ARs like they would be today. But you know, I I'll tell you what, they took heretics and false teachers and false prophets very seriously in scripture.
They took him very seriously during the Reformation. There's a guy named Servetus who was burned at the stake for teaching falsely. And we say to ourselves, that is so cruel and so terrible. Well, you know what? During different epochs of time, during different eras, they took the things they took things that were meant to be taken very seriously. They took them very seriously. Something could even result in death. And we say to ourselves, that's just out of line. Well, the reason why we do that is because we've been conditioned through decades and centuries of foolishness not to take the things of God very seriously. There was a time where if a prophet preacher who stood in a pulpit and preached to his congregation that if he had committed adultery or something like that, he would be removed from office and he could not pastor anywhere else. And today, they're usually removed, sometimes, not always, and if they are removed, they're in another pastorate within five years. Do you know what really helps to keep me pure in that regard? Is the threat of absolutely obliterating this office for the rest of my life, because that's the, that's the threat in Scripture. For me to fail morally is to never pastor again. And that's what the Bible teaches. And so because I understand that and have understood it since day one, I'm not saying that's the only thing that keeps me from cheating on Rachel. If I said that, Rachel would be like, I thought you loved me. <laughs> well, yeah, but I'm saying that that is, that warning is in Scripture to keep the man who preaches, who is subjected to more temptation than the average saint, believe me, to help him understand that he can, he can wreck his ministry, he can wreck his family, he can wreck his marriage, he can wreck his church. There's a lot hanging here. And today, none of this stuff is taken seriously. If a guy fails morally or whatever, we just give him a break. We send him away to Colorado for a few weeks. We bring him back with some counseling. Maybe he goes through a 12-step program, and then he's back. And then the congregation, when he shows up, goes, <laughs> right? And then within two to three years, he does it again. No, there's a threat. These things should be taken seriously. Should they be killed? Eh. Should they lose their office? Yes. And, you know, in verse 33a, Paul does something amazing. He really gives the key to the entire chapter. All of chapter 14 is just summarized in, in 33a. Our worship must reflect the character and nature of God. How can chaos in a worship service reflect the God of peace and the God of order? All these tongues blowing up, all this prophecy blowing up, people in positions that shouldn't be in them, whatever. Pick your poison. How does any of that reflect the God they are coming together to worship? Huh? It doesn't reflect him. Since God is not a, Paul says, since God is not a God of confusion but of peace, our worship cannot be confusing like it was at Corinth. It can't be a bunch of gibberish or a bunch of people speaking out of turn and just generating all this congregational confusion. It has to be peaceful. And in order to have a worship service that is peaceful, it must have structure and it must have order. How many of you have a church background where nobody rehearsed anything and nobody prepared a message and you showed up and everyone just said, well, we're just acting in the spirit today? This happens in churches today. Mostly, no offense, but the charismatic ones. We just show up and we wing it. What you end up with is Ringling Brothers. Da, 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 you know, oh, Susie's giving a tongue and Fred's playing the bass. Ba, da, da, da. He's like corn, you know, playing it down low, you know. 
stop playing a song in the middle because you broke a string, you know, or whatever. I'm sorry, Ryan, but it happens, you know. I just, it's just total and absolute chaos. And, and if you don't have order and structure, if you don't pray through and think through what you're doing, that's what you end up with. And so you're, you're supposed to think through what you do. And you know what? There are things that arise during a worship service that you just can't control. Like, for instance, breaking a string on a guitar. That's not anyone's fault. He's playing it for the Lord and it breaks, right? There was a time where I used to preach from an iPad. And then when the iPad failed me on a Sunday, I never brought it back. It started doing the little rainbow of death. And I was like, what are you doing? I'm in the middle of a message. I wasn't saying this. I was saying it in my mind while smiling, while looking down, going, oh, Lord, we're in trouble. And then I rebooted it, and it came back on. And I'm like, we're back. And then it gave me the ring of death again. I was like, we're not back. But I had memorized what I was going to say, and I preached without it. But you know, when you rely on technology, you're subjected to technology. When you rely on instruments, you're subjected to strings to drumsticks, to all these other things, whatever. You can't anticipate these things happening. They happen. But, you know, you should be ready for them. Order. It takes order to execute a service in a way that, that parallels and dovetails with God's character traits. He's a God of order and peace, so the service should be orderly and peaceful. In Corinth, it was nuts. If you went to a service there, it was bananas. It was crazy. It was loud and disorderly, and it was like being in that room last night. I can't understand a single word in here. Until it gets quiet, you can't understand, you know, with one person speaking. So that's how it was. J. Mac again, and I'm just quoting him left and right. He says, God cannot be honored where there is disharmony and confusion, competition, and frenzied, you know, self-serving and self-glorifying. He's describing the Corinthian church. Chaos and discord in a church meeting is certain proof that the Spirit of God is not leading. Why? Because where the Spirit rules, there is always what? Peace. One of the things that I think is just, I don't know, it's, it's funny, it's comical to me, is that those groups out there that have these nuts, chaotic, unplanned, disorderly, crazy services where it's difficult to figure out what's going on in them. And they're out there. They're right down the street. One just moved in down the street. It's in those places that they proclaim to be spirit-led. And the Bible says very clearly that where the spirit is ruling, there is order and there is peace. So when you walk into a chaotic room, you can know without a doubt from Scripture that the spirit is not in control there, that the spirit is not leading, that the spirit may not even be in the room. All right, fifth guideline, and this is the one. Here we go. I need, I need some MMA training. Uh, I'm glad you're here. Uh, come on up here and give me some grappling stuff, Tim. I, I know there's going to be some women who are going to want to put me in an arm bar or something here. You ready for this? E, women are not permitted to prophesy during worship gatherings. Oh, ooh, here we go. Line in the sand. Let's rock and roll. Daryl's smiling. This is not good. <laughs> this is verses 33b to 36. Yes, this is the text that, that most pull from to say that women cannot pastor. And that's not the wrong understanding of the text. But let's get into it so you can understand. 33b to 36. We'll start at 33b to 34. Listen to what he says here. He says... 
as in all the churches of the saints, every church that existed then that he had planted, every other church that had been planted, the Jerusalem church, all the churches that were in existence at that time, and all the churches that would ever exist on through until the return of Christ, this is the whole church of Christ, not Latter-day, real church from the Bible, as in all the churches of the saints, that's what we're called, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission as the law also says. Stop there. Paul begins this teaching on women pastors and prophets and speaking and all that stuff. Remember what the context is. He's talking about the gift of prophecy. That's your context. So when he's talking about women speaking, what is he talking about? Women prophesying primarily. He expands on it in a moment, but that's what he's saying. But he begins this, I think it's difficult for modern day readers because they think the opposite, but it wasn't as hard for his audience, but he begins before even really launching into this theology from the Bible, into this biblical truth, by emphasizing the fact that a print, the principle that he's teaching here, that he's going to teach here, that women should remain silent rather than prophesy, he is saying that it's not some kind of a local or geographical or cultural or contextual reality. Um, it is actually universal. He says, in all the churches of the saints. In other words, this is a church-wide guideline. This is a unilateral rule for every church to follow until Christ returns. And there is no exception to this guideline because he says that it is as the law says, the law of God. All right. Paul, Paul is now saying this because in the Corinthian church, there were women who would step up and step forward and join in with the men, the male prophets who were prophesying, whether it be new revelation or old exposition, there were women who would join in and start teaching the congregation as well, just like the men were doing. That's what was happening. There's your context. Saying that women should keep silent in churches rather than prophesy is tantamount or the same thing as saying that they are not permitted to preach teach nor serve as pastor elders since pre since congregational preaching and teaching and prophesying it's all primarily the responsibility of the pastor elder of the ancient prophet that's a male role not for women never was for women never will be for women so he's saying that those women should not speak meaning they cannot serve in that kind of office it's not for them it's not for them and as I said, in that, he has to say this because in this church, they, this is not what they were doing. And frankly, I mean, there are very talented women out there who can, who can teach the word. There's no doubt. It's not about quality. It's not about ability or anything like that. In this particular context, it was inappropriate because it's not the job for women to do. But secondly, the female voices just added to the male voices and all those voices were doing is producing confusion because everyone was blathering on at once. And so the women were catering to the confusion along with the men who had started the confusion. They would join in with the male prophets and teach the congregation. Their voices and posture added to the confusion. Firstly, since the law forbids that women are not supposed to be doing that. Secondly, um, 
It was just more voices that were added on to voices. Nobody could understand what was going on. And another reason is because something like this was so uncommon and rare. It just never happened in the ancient synagogues or the first century churches. Women never stepped forward to teach. And, but in Corinth, they were doing that. They were setting a new precedent. In fact, I would call the church at Corinth the very first egalitarian church where men and women shared pastoral roles. And Paul is saying as plainly and as clearly as he can that women are not to serve and speak in that prophetic way congregationally because it violates God's order and decree. It violates his law. And just think about the implications. When a person, any person, teaches Scripture, they are exercising a level of authority over their hearers. Why? Because they're teaching from God's Word, which is our authority. You see, I, as an elder, have no authority of my own. And now you're saying, good, we can party like it's 1999. Well, I only have authority when I wield the authority. I only have the authority when I obey the authority, when I teach the authority, when I walk in the authority. Any authority that I, Cameron, Bruce, Dustin, or Dave have comes directly from this. On our own, we have no authority. So when this is handled, that person has a position of authority. And when it comes to women, they were never intended from day one to wield that authority but to be submissive. That is the main issue here. It's not just that they were adding to the confusion or that they were breaking a precedent. They're violating God's clear law all the way back to Genesis. At the fall, listen to this. At the fall, God decreed that Eve would be subject or in submission to Adam, right? Genesis 3.16b. So, God, think of it like this when it, when it comes to authority or headship. God firstly creates Adam. There's your headship. And then Eve is created, not just created, but created from him. So, in the creation account, we see headship and authority given to man. He's firstly created and woman comes from him. Woman was not made from the dust. She was made from man. And that is a symbol of man's authority and a symbol of her submission. So it's there in creation. Now at the fall, God absolutely declares that authority. He says in 3.16a or b, you will be subject to your husband. But he also says it's not something you'll want. It's not something you'll want to do. But you're going to be subjected to your husband. Listen to this. Headship or biblical authority is the result of creation and the fall. Headship, in a way, is a judgment against humanity. It is. You will be subject. Woman took the fruit and ate first, right? She was the first to be deceived. That's another reason why women shouldn't serve in teaching roles in congregational settings. Because for whatever reason, they can be more easily deceived than men. We even see it in the creation account. But that's a side point. Point being, Adam's created first, Eve is created from him, there's headship. At the fall, not as necessarily a punishment, but just as a unilateral judgment on humanity, 
Woman was already subject to man, but God declares it as part of a curse. You will, you will be, in a sense, under your husband, and it's not something that you are going to want to do. It's going to go against your very fallen nature because it is in, within the fallen nature of a woman to lead and to exercise authority and headship. So part of the curse is that she wants to do that, but she's not permitted to. That's insane to think that headship is not just the result of creation, but also the result of judgment. In a way, it's a punishment, I guess. It's nuts to think about it. Women will be subject to men, and it's not something they will naturally desire to do. 316a of Genesis, when a woman wields the word of God, this is really the point more than anything, when a woman wields the word of God in a congregation, she exerts authority over the men because she is handling the source of authority. That's the issue. Understand? That's the problem. When she teaches the word, she exudes or exerts authority over everyone essentially in the room. This is what happens. When woman wields the word, she exercises authority in the congregation and she ultimately disobeys the creation order and the judgment of the fall that she's to be submissive and subject rather than above. Rather than submitting, when a woman steps into a pulpit and preaches a congregation full of men and women, rather than being submissive like Eve was even after the fall and after the curse, she ends up exercising authority. Rather than being like Eve, she ends up being like Adam. She violates the creative order. She violates God's judgment in Genesis 3.16. She violates the law of God, which stipulates that women can't serve in these offices. Now, and you're thinking to yourself, okay, I'm fine with that. I'm tracking with you. The gals in here are like, yeah, you know what? I'm, maybe we'll still love Phil, but not as much. But listen, you're thinking, well, I know that there were prophetesses in the Old Testament. Yeah, there were. Mm -hmm. And there were some in the New Testament. We have to be holistic here. It's not about being fair because to, if you're going to be try to be fair to by, put, by putting women on, on equal pastoral roleship here, then we're not, that's not being fair. That's called being unbiblical. But I, there, yes, there were prophetesses in the Old Testament and New Testament. Here's a list of them. Miriam. Exodus 15, 20 to 21, Deborah, Judges 4, 4, uh, Huldah, 2 Kings 22, 15 or 14, um, uh Nehemiah 6, 14, and Noah's wife, she was actually a prophetess, Isaiah 8, 3. Anna, we know her from the book of Acts, right? Chapter 2, verse 36, she stayed in the temple all the time praying day and night because Israel was subjected to the Romans and all this. She wanted the Messiah to come and deliver them, but she was actually called a prophetess. And then a really interesting group here is Philip. Philip, uh, I, we're talking about Philip the Apostle here, I believe, or if not Philip the Apostle, I should have probably researched that. He's either the deacon Philip or the apostle. I think it's the apostle. But he had four daughters, virgin daughters, who were all called prophetesses. Acts 21, 8 to 9. So, so in the Old Testament, you had prophetesses. In the New Testament, you had prophetesses. And because of that reality, that is what people use to argue for women pastors and all that. But they, I don't know how they deal with what we're dealing with here in 14. In any case, there were also false prophetesses. 
in Scripture. False ones. Ezekiel 13, 17 to 31. And in, in Ezekiel, you see it. And then we see it in Revelation 2.20 with the gal that was called Jezebel. She was from Thyatira. She was a false prophetess leading that church astray. Understand this. Yes, there were Old Testament prophetesses, New Testament prophetesses, but none of the Old Testament or New Testament prophetesses ever, ever, ever served as teaching rabbis in the synagogues. None of them in the New Testament prophetesses ever served as apostles, prophets, pastors, elders, or preacher teachers in the churches. Never. There's no account of that anywhere. So there is a distinction between the prophetess of Old Testament, New Testament, and you know, women preaching in pulpits, women taking up pastorates. There's a distinction. The prophetess has never served in any role like that. So there's a distinction that exists. In fact, a prophetess could not serve as a rabbi in the synagogues in the Old Testament, and a prophetess could not serve as a pastor. Why? As I said, because those are male-only roles. That's why. They could not serve as congregational preachers in the churches for the exact same reason. Now, by and large, the women of antiquity, of ancient times, they did not attempt to serve in these positions because they understood that those positions were, according to Scripture, for men, except in the Corinthian church. It may have been the first egalitarian church to its own shame, to its own downfall, Sadly, the cancer of ecclesiological egalitarianism had spread from, uh, from Corinth south to Ephesus where Timothy, you, you're all familiar with Timothy, he got two epistles in there from Paul. That's where he was serving. He served at the church at Ephesus. And so gals there were trying to follow the pattern of gals up in Corinth and saying, look, we can serve as pastors. I know it's a new thing, but we can do it. And they were trying to do it. And that forced Paul to address that issue when he said, I do not per permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet, 1 Timothy 2.12. That sounds almost exactly like what Paul just told the Corinthians. It's basically the same warning. It's the same truth. J. Mack again, he says, it is not coincidental that, like Corinth, Many of the churches today that practice speaking in tongues and claim gifts of healing also permit women to engage in speaking ministry. Many charismatic groups, in fact, were begun by women, just as many of the cults that have sprung up from Christianity were also founded by women. I think of the Seventh-day Adventists with Ellen G. White. He says, when women usurp God-ordained roles, they inevitably fall into other unbiblical practices and delusions. Women may be highly gifted teachers and leaders, but those gifts are not to be exercised over men in the services of the church. God has ordained order in his creation and order that reflect it's an, an order that reflects his own nature and therefore should be reflected in the church. When any part of his order is ignored or rejected, like women taking up male positions, his church is weakened and he is dishonored. This is what happens. Now, here's the bottom line. Men are to lead in love. Women are to submit in love. That is God's design. 
Now, it's important for us to understand, just as a side note, that if men fail to lead in love, that does not give women the right to forfeit submission and to take up leadership. Under no circumstances is a woman to take up male leadership, even if the male fails at his leadership. Or vice versa. You know, if a woman has particular duties that God has given her and some of the women can't execute it well or right or whatever you want to call it, guys aren't supposed to say, I'll get in there and do what women, I'll get in there and do what the women are supposed to be doing. That is equally a disgrace to God. And that happens. Understand that these roles of headship and submission and these things, they're not contingent upon one another. What people try to say today is that, well, you know what? Yes, I understand that, and I will submit to the process. But when my husband isn't very loving, I am not going to submit to him. No, the roles are not contingent upon one another. Men are to submit in, or men are to lead in love, no matter what, and women are to submit in love, regardless of how well men do. And men are to do that regardless of how well women do. They're not contingent where... And you have an escape hatch. I have a husband that's just not very loving, so I'll just take charge. That is the devil. But I think we would all agree that for men to love well, it's much maybe easier for them to love well if their wives are submissive. And it's certainly more easy for women to submit to a loving husband rather than to a hard and difficult one. Amen? But that doesn't change the law. The law is the law. God's rule is God's rule. I would just simply say, why don't we work on ourselves, me as a man, rather than worrying about how well my wife submits, why don't I work on myself and try to cultivate an environment where she submits very organically and wants to because I love so well? And vice versa, huh? It's difficult for a husband to really embrace a wife in all facets of love if she's always fighting him on everything and always trying to control everything, as Genesis 3 says they will try to do. I'm not saying it's right. I'm not saying we have escape hatches. I'm saying if we will do the part of working on ourselves. See, this is what happens. I say to myself, I will be more loving when she is more submissive. And that is not the right way to think or to speak. I am to be more loving because Christ loved me more than I can ever imagine. Not because Rachel loves me well. Fact, the fact is, she's in the other room. I should be careful. But she does love me very well most times. But there's some days where it's hard. And trust me, submitting to me is not an easy thing. I mean, for crying out loud, if, Ra if Rachel were to say Ephesians, I would ride her on that for six months. That's not very loving. Yeah, it is. But I mean, just think about it. Why don't we work on ourselves rather than making those demands? You know, sometimes what we say is you could be a hard man and you could demand that your wife be submissive because that's what Scripture says. But you are neglecting what Scripture says about you to love as Christ loves his church. So what I'm saying is why don't we help each other out by working on ourselves rather than making those demands? Become a loving husband that your wife wants to submit to. Be a loving wife that compels and drives your husband to lead in love. Don't make these demands. Through all the years of ministry that we've done and been together, I have seen so many scenarios where guys were demanding this of their wives and wives were demanding that. And I'm sitting here looking at it and saying, pal, you need to go look in the mirror. 
you're not an easy person to submit to because you demand it. You should never have to demand submission from your wife. If you have to demand it, you aren't earning it through love. It's not that you have to earn it, but you should do something to conjure, to cultivate, to create that in her. And I don't even know what that has to do with women preachers. Maybe it just has to do as a whole as headship. Headship is not an easy thing to execute for us guys sometimes, but it's something that we're called to and we have to do it. And it's certainly, submission is certainly not an easy thing for gals at times, but it's something that you're called to. Do we all at least understand where the authority is and what happens when this is wielded in a congregation? Do we understand that how we can violate that? Let me, let me be sensitive to women. A, a, a woman could have wonderful teaching gifts. I've seen it in Bible studies. I mean, wonderful teaching gifts. Be a nurturer, be gentle, be loving, be kind, be sensitive, be talented, more so than many of the men in the church. Might have a real heart of worship for the Lord. But I think that the woman that is like that will understand what the word says and not go beyond what she's supposed to go beyond and not kick against that and be frustrated with it, but rejoice in it because the minute a woman rejects what God says, no matter how talented she is, she is not believing that God's way is best. Right down the street, there's a woman preaching right now and she is not believing that God's way is best and bringing reproach upon that congregation. And when men allow this to happen, they are worse. Many charge Adam with not being around or being really coherent when Eve was, you know, eating those shiny apples. Where was he? Was he failing to lead? I don't know. That implies that he had a sin nature, and he didn't have a sin nature. But he was easily duped because he loved his wife. But where was he at? He should have cut the head off that snake. So men fail too. And when you see a woman preaching in a pulpit, in a congregation of mixed gender, two, by the way, men and women, not Apache helicopters and zebras or whatever they've come up with today with all these genders, when you see that happening, that is the failure of that woman and that is the failure of the men of that church. It's the failure of both Verses 35 and 36, if there is anything they desire, speaking of women, desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. For it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? Oh, boy. This is a, another prohibition here. Paul has already said very clearly that women should remain silent regarding prophecy and teaching and all that. They can't serve in pastorates because pastors teach and all that. They can't be elders because elders teach and all that. They wield the authority of the word. He's already stated all this very clearly. Now he's saying they should just avoid asking any questions when the church is gathered. We don't see this problem here. Sometimes we get a visitor that comes in. It's usually some guy that's very animated and probably took a powdery-like substance before the service and decides to interrupt the preaching and start preaching. We've seen this. It's been very interesting. Uh, we've never had any gals step forward and do anything like that. But in Corinth, it was common for women to, hey, I don't understand what he just said. Somebody explain it to me, you know. And Paul is saying, you should ask your husband when you get home those questions. The, the, the worship context is not a context for Q&A. 
It's not a context for trying to, you know, figure things out. If you don't understand something, fine. God wants you to ask questions. The Bereans did that, but don't do it and interrupt the service. That's what he's saying. So you had some that were stepping forward and teaching. That was taboo and wrong, violating God's word. You had some that were disrupting the service. That was wrong. Paul says, don't do that. You go home and ask your husband. And if you, if you don't have a husband to ask when you get home or whatever, wait till the service ends and go talk to your pastor. Go talk to the prophet that just prophesied. There's a time and place for questions. There's a time and place for discussion. And it's not in an orderly worship service where we're trying to learn. If people are asking questions... I, there's a distraction being created. We had a Bible study years ago, church history study, and it wasn't a context like this where we were coming together to worship, but it was still a teaching context, and we had a gal that we didn't know who was visiting who stood up and proceeded to rebuke all of us in there for being Calvinists or whatever, and I was just sitting here going, 1 Corinthians 14. You know, she just didn't know her place. First of all, what would ever possess a person to step into a church they don't, where they don't, they know one person, and to do something like that. If I go to a church, I hide in the back. I'm not going to step up and go, "Hey, I don't know," or make my point. I mean, that just takes—that's another level of pride or being disconnected. Maybe she was a Platonist; her spirit was disconnected from the rest of her body. It was a bizarre thing, and, and Paul is addressing that here. You don't. This is not something that you do. And I think what he's doing is he's talking about verse 29b again. Women were weighing in on the prophecies that were being given. It's the other prophets that were to do that, not women. So women would interject and disrupt the service by speaking and asking all sorts of questions. You know, and what they should have done was just waited to get home and talk to their husbands or talk to a pastor after the service. We've never really had that problem here, but, you know, we should be warned regardless. Women should refrain from prophesying or speaking during a service. That doesn't mean they, can, they can't lean over and say, honey, I have to go potty. I'm going to the restroom. Don't do that. Just stay there and go. We start passing out depends at the door. <laughs> Stupid. You can say something like that. You're just not trying to disrupt the service. The point here really isn't even women speaking. It's order in the worship service why are we distracting from the prophecies that are given the exposition or or the singing or whatever it is that we're doing or the reading these things need to be done orderly so that we can all learn and be built up and grow the less distractions the better how many of us would all especially when you get older we would all admit and agree that i have enough distractions without one being in the room i am distracted when i sit there a fly an ambulance, a weirdo coming through the door. It's like, you know, I mean, I don't, I don't need anything else. I'm already there. One thing, Bruce's phone going off while he's preaching. You remember that? Hey, I did one worse, bro. I had my phone go off during communion at Big Valley, and the entire church went, and I was like, I mean, it was horrible. We don't need any more distractions. That what, that's what Paul is saying. Lastly, notice his sarcasm in verse 36. Paul asked the Corinthians if they were the original source of the Word of God. Do you think that the Word of God has proceeded from you? Or maybe you are the only church in the whole known universe to receive it. Why would he say something like this to them in pure Pauline sarcasm? It's because of all the wonderful revisions they were attempting to make to the Word of God by integrating women as pastors and 
They were trying to do church their own way. And in a sense, they were adding to the scriptures. And so Paul says, hey, I like the Bible you're producing. This is exciting. It's pure sarcasm. We have the word. You're to do what it says, not make it up as you go or add or subtract from it. That's what he's saying. Last point F, prophets and Christians alike must recognize and obey Paul's writings as scripture, 37 to 40. If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. Paul anticipates that both men and women in the Corinthian church will attempt to explain away or to dismiss his teachings, kind of like they do today. Well, that was a cultural thing, and women can preach today. That was just, it was a cultural thing then, and it doesn't apply to today. Paul anticipated that people would try to do this then and even in our day, like we see. And so he adds a clear warning. If a man thinks he is a prophet, he must acknowledge what Paul has written concerning female prophets or serving as preacher teachers in the congregation or whatever. He must admit that what Paul is saying here regarding those things is actually a command of the Lord and not Paul's cultural opinions. He must submit. If somebody thinks they're a prophet, they must submit to what Paul has written here because they are the commands of the Lord. This is not just Paul talking. And that's what people today say. We can have women pastors because that was just Paul's opinion. Paul is saying this is the command of the Lord. This is scripture. This is God's will and word for his church. In other words, that potential prophet or someone serving in that role must acknowledge and obey Paul's words because they are scripture, no less, no more. And then Paul says the exact same thing to those who are spiritual. And I think that is a clear reference to all Christians since all Christians have the spirit and are by nature spiritual people. So to those who serve as prophets or pastors and to those who attend churches and belong to churches, they're people that love Jesus and go to church, he's saying to both groups... You must receive what I am saying about women teaching and preaching and speaking and prophesying in the church or even asking questions. You must receive what I'm saying, not as a cultural opinion, not as some kind of an ancient idea. You must receive it as the command of the Lord. It is scripture. It is scripture. You must understand Prophets, in other words, prophets and non-prophets alike in the church must not let women serve as prophets who preach and teach the word to congregations. That position is for men only, period. It's not negotiable. And what is the warning? What will happen if either group, prophets or regular Christians, fail to obey this command of the Lord? We see it in 38. Paul says that if a person does not recognize his teachings and the authority of his teachings as scripture, guess what will happen to them? They themselves will not be recognized. Oh, man. How will they not be recognized? Well, I think it has to do with their service. If a person rejects the apostles' teachings, they are to be rejected as legitimate servants of God. We don't look at some woman who's preaching to a congregation and say that's a legitimate servant. That is someone who is violating the word and law of God. That is not a legitimate servant. They are serving outside of their scope. Therefore, they are not a proper or right servant. And I think you could almost say the same thing about men who allow it. You could say it. If scripture does not recognize women as congregational preacher, teacher, prophets, whatever you want to call them as pastors, if scripture doesn't recognize them as such, then neither should the people of God. We can only recognize that which is scriptural. Everything else must be rejected. 
Women cannot legitimately serve God in roles that are meant for men. They might have degrees, door plaques, diamond-studded microphones, but in God's eyes when they step into those positions, they are, as Paul says here, shameful. Shameful, as strong a warning as you can get. Shameful to God. And likewise, men cannot legitimately serve God in roles that are meant for women. That is equally shameful. 39 to 40, so my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. That's the whole point of the text. Paul concludes the chapter with a summary exhortation for the Corinthians to hold prophecy in the superior position, in that preeminent position in their services, but not to despise or reject real tongues, speaking in human languages with interpretation. He doesn't, he's not, he's never once been telling the Corinthians to stop speaking in tongues. He says, do the real thing with interpretation or don't do it at all. He's not trying to, you know, squelch or stop the gift. We know that it fell off shortly after that, but he's not trying to do that. But he's saying, put the emphasis on the one that really builds up. And if you do the other one, just do it right. And they weren't doing it right. These and, and all the other spiritual gifts, they were all to be done decently and in order, as he says. Why? So that the Corinthian church could be built up. That, my friends, concludes chapter 14. I mentioned this many, many Sundays ago. There are five worship-related subjects that Paul addresses in chapters 12 to 15. And so far, we have looked at scriptural submission. Remember that? That was eons ago. Scriptural sacraments, that was a while ago, and we just wrapped up and finished scriptural service. 